I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. The Federal Education Minister has announced that the childcare subsidy will be back on Monday, July 13, along with a number of other new measures. From the government's perspective, the economy is getting back to normal, and the early education sector seems to be first cab off the rank for snapping back. But the government's planned transition is complex and will require an already strained sector to once again adjust to significant changes. What does this all mean for children, educators and families? Here with me to discuss that and probably a lot more is my regular partner in crime, Lisa Bryant. How are you going, Lisa? I'm not a criminal. <laughs> I think, well, only in the sense of being a partner, Lisa. I think <laughs> there's probably, we've probably verged on criminal acts in this podcast, but, you know, um, hopefully haven't crossed over the line. Certainly inciting them. <laughs> hey, have you explained that we had to give leave without pay to Leanne? No. Well, this is the first episode we sort of recorded together, our last couple of episodes which I hope people listen to and enjoyed, have been sort of uh, a, bit, a bit different. But this is the first time we're sitting down to, to banter. But no, we were we were very kind and generous. And Leanne is taking a little bit of a, a break for the next probably month or so, isn't she? Yeah, apparently she's doing some piece of writing that takes an enormous amount of time or something. Yeah, she's a clever clogs, Leanne. But um, <laughs> yes, as opposed to the two of us who have always got time to... To banter about this stuff. <laughs> Leanne's actually got things on. So, yes, she'll be away probably for the next few episodes, but we will soldier on, won't we, Lisa? We're, we're brave. We're brave troopers. Yeah, and anyway, it'll be so exciting to have a, a doctor as, um, as part of our podcast. It's very... We, get her back. we definitely need to use that to promote. I'm going to have to update the, like the cover art of the thing, make sure we put a doctor. Yeah. Maybe we should put with Dr. Leanne Gibbs and then not Dr. Lisa Bryant and not Dr. <laughs> yeah. Le- just to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this episode is going to be one of our sort of uh, one of our sub genre of sort of reaction episodes. We've done these with early education funding announcements before with budgets, um, where we just kind of the government announces some crazy new thing and we just sort of rock back, have a stiff drink, and sort of digest it for a bit. So this will be this will be one of those. We're going to meander around a bit. We're going to do some, you know, we're probably going to go off on some tangents, but this is going to be classic banter. But I thought I might start with, uh, as quickly as I can, a rundown of the changes that have been announced. Is that okay, Lisa? It sure is, but I'll interrupt you if you get anything wrong, so sh- make sure you don't. I'm sure. I can't wait. So... <laughs> Once again, so we should say as well, um, one of the one of our time coded episodes. We're recording this on uh, Tuesday, uh, the 9th of June. Uh, the information was announced yesterday during a public holiday. Thank you very much, uh, federal government and Dan Tian. Uh, that was a yeah very fun first day back from a long weekend. Was breaking all this down at work I've got to say um, but so we are anticipating that as with all this stuff there'll be some more information dribbling out over the next little while but this is kind of what we know as of uh, as we said Tuesday the June of night so what we do know is that the government will be bringing back the childcare subsidy from the 13th of July so we will be uh, ending this period of time we've been having with free early childhood education and care we'll have a lot more to say on that I think a bit later uh, what we also know is that the uh, the relief package itself will be ending. So the funding that's been coming through, the 50% of revenue from the end of February, will be ceasing and will be moving to what they're calling the transition payment, which will be 25% of fee revenue from the end of February. So basically half of what people 
have been getting for the last little while since the start of April. But remember that that only goes for, uh, uh, you know, a, a few months. Yeah, until the start of October. Not... Yep. Yeah. Uh, one of the more controversial aspects of these this announcement is that uh, because of the transition payment, the government will be ceasing JobKeeper payments to early childhood education and care services. So there will be no more JobKeeper uh, for those services from the 20th of July. Um, we should say that's one of the things that we're well, certainly I'm looking for a bit more information on. So it's not entirely clear to me. I don't know if you have more info than me, Lisa. And we can get into it later about how that works for services that do more than early education. So if you're an organisation that does community services and early education. Yeah, um, I think it's going to be really interesting. Yes, but we don't seem to have clarity on that yet. And yeah. then one of the also more complicated aspects of this is that the government will be uh, sort of loosening, easing, I think is the word they've used, some of the activity test requirements. So there will be 100 hours of uh, subsidised enrolments available for families who meet particularly particular criteria around their employment being affected by COVID-19. So I think that there, and the, have you read all the sub-details of that? Lisa, I printed off the government, the oh. department's FAQ, all 23 pages of it. Oh. And that in particular, we might have to spend a bit of time talking about, but that in particular just has more asterisks and caveats than anything I've seen. I I, I don't understand it. And I'm, look, I'm not the smartest genius in the world. I certainly don't have a PhD. I'm like soon to be people in this podcast but Come i've been, on, there, you do, you I've been do around the traps in early childhood for a while basically means that almost no one will qualify for it. <laughs> yeah we might get into that a little bit later but they're the big changes i think the first thing you know i kind of want to just sort of acknowledge for people and i'm sort of saying this as someone who's feeling it and 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 going through it as well so i've just spent a day at work where we've you know had to break down these changes we've had to draft emails to families we've had to talk with center directors we've had to talk with educators you know, this is another... Redo budgets? Redo, well, I don't think we're quite... That, that sits with the CFO. I'm glad I don't have her job. Um, yeah, poor uh, uh, poor CFO. She is uh, earning her pay and more for the last few months. Um, but I just want to acknowledge for people that, you know, this is such a period of time... Uh, sorry, a period of time of challenge and change and, and just, you know, sudden announcements for the sector. And that is, you know, it's quite draining and it's quite... Um, can be almost feel a bit overwhelming at times. So I think this is just a general solidarity, virtual podcast hug to everyone out there who's dealing with this stuff. We we hear you and you're doing amazing stuff. Hang in there. It's, it's funny though, Liam. I, you know, as usual, I've spent a bit of time floating around Facebook groups, <laughs> etc. Today, and I think a lot of people just think, "Oh, okay, we're just going back to normal. That's it," and not. Uh, working out the nuances. Yeah, I think yeah. I can I can understand why, you know, that's probably the, the headline stuff, but there is a lot to dig through here, which I think maybe this isn't this might not be the episode to dig into the minutiae because I think it is really complex. I think what we would say to people is really make sure you're reading the the guidelines that are available on the Department of Education website. I think this is one of those times as well, Lisa, we did this recently that um, we will give a bit of credit to the, the department. They've managed to get some updated information up pretty quickly. Oh, uh, yeah, except, yes, yes, they have, and that's very good. Yeah, they've pl- been planning this for a few weeks before the announcement, and then they've made the announcement. So, of course, they have the comms in place. But what I never understand is why the comms all get interwoven in this never-ending frequently asked questions i can see why they'd eventually want to put it there but why not give us 
you know, a few page document about what has changed rather than, you know, making everyone read through the past stuff and have enough nows to work out if that's a new bit or if that's slightly different. Yeah, it is. Yes, I do, I do agree. As I said, I hit print on the, the frequently asked questions page and ended up with about 23 pages. Um, so, yes, I do agree. But I think the, the suggestion service is that use that as the point of truth. I wouldn't be um, getting too much information either from social media necessarily. But um, there is a lot there. Or from us. Or for, or, well, yeah, well, probably to be true. We're, we're probably going to be thinking more about the, impl- the policy and the advocacy implications of this. There is a lot the services need to be aware of. So if you're listening to this and you maybe thought, oh, you know, this is kind of we're back to normal, um, I would read it really carefully. There are a lot of uh, implications, particularly around JobKeeper. I think for, for services, you really need to think as a, if you're a particularly for a standalone, um, what that will mean for your for your organisation. But I think one of the ways I wanted to kick off this conversation, Lisa, was, well, firstly, by congratulating you for another great piece in The Guardian. Thank you. Um, that's your second, I think, for pretty recently around this stuff. Well done. Um, the third for The Guardian. Yes, but if for people who haven't had a chance to to read it, or even if you have, I think, you know, the, the things you cover in there will give us a great sort of summary of some of the key issues. Do you want to take us through, you know, what I guess what were your, your key sort of points thinking about that that article? Look, it's it's sometimes hard for me because I've written so many opinion pieces about education and care over the last, you know, however many years I've been doing this, and it's hard to think of a new angle and a new newsworthy angle, and I just feel like I'm saying the same thing time and time again. But what it struck me, and not without a bit of anger, was that we knew that this was going to happen. We knew that a government had been voted in that essentially doesn't really like education and care. They don't really like educators. They don't like education and care. And, you know, they don't really like women that much either. And before someone, you know, goes and tells me, you know, I'm wrong, I keep going back, and I've, I've done it for the last few pieces I've written, I keep going back to a particular document on the Parliamentary Library website which tells us exactly how many men and women there are in each party. And when I, like, I, I'm lousy with maths, it's not my thing, but when I, I've done it, you know, three different times now and I never trust what I learned the last time because it always seems surely it couldn't be that bad. I go back and I realise that 80% of their representatives in the lower house, of the coalition's representatives, so that's the Liberal Party and the National Party, when you put them together, 80% of them are men. So this is a party that doesn't even trust women to be their representatives to for to win an electorate. That's how much they dislike or trust women. Only twenty percent of of their you know MPs are women. How on earth can a party so bereft of experience? like lived experience of womanhood, actually vote for policy that's good for women. And by women I mean 
for the mothers that invariably the childcare load falls on and the educators, the 97% of educators who are women? And the answer is they can't. And so that's kind of more or less what I covered in the article. Yeah, look, I firstly really recommend for anyone who hasn't uh, read it. It's a it's a great summary of the issues and from sort of, as you said, Lisa, a slightly different perspective than I think we've seen before. Um, there's so many things I want to pick up from there. But I, I think it, it, it is fascinating. And I think we talked about this during the Jobs for Families lead up, that there was that great photo of the end. There was, I think, a joint uh, or a joint announcement about paid parental leave and uh, the Jobs for Families funding. And it was, you know, four blokes in suits. I can't remember who the four were now, but <laughs> making these announcements. And we're kind of back there again. So, you know, Dan Tian's made this announcement. I assume it's, you know, been signed off by uh, Scott Morrison as the Prime Minister. And it is, I think it is inevitable that this is the kind of decisions you get when these are the people making the decisions. I wonder, Lisa, if you wanted to maybe just talk to us a bit more about because I think one of the things that's been fascinating to me, and I probably want to pick this up as a bigger point later, is that I get this sense over the last little while, and in part thanks to um, people like, I know, your, your friend and colleague, Georgie Dent, it feels like the conversation has gotten a lot wider than the sector. And actually, maybe controversially, I think maybe the conversation has gotten a bit better outside the sector, but it seems like, particularly after this announcement, which we need to acknowledge, and I joked about it at the start, but was made on a public holiday, and... We, it's not a huge amount of notice to you know either educator services or families. Yes, it's a month, but you know that's that's not not a huge amount of time for people to you know change everything they're doing. Um, what the it seems remember to... the one they announced on Mother's Day? <laughs> oh God, that's right. What was that one? What was that one? Was it? <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, I can't remember either. But I think it seems like what people are now talking about is that this is an example of we're, we're talking. I think I'm struggling to articulate this, Lisa, but it may be because you've already done it so well in the article. I don't want to just copy your words, even though I do that all the time in other forums. Is that don't worry, I steal your words. <laughs> we're, talk- the <laughs> we're, we're talking about broader issues than just, you know, the activity test or yeah. enrolments. What, what, what's going on there, do you think? Okay. I think the thing, and this is the thing that most scares me, that the sector hasn't fully understood yet is that we're in a recession, you know. We may not have had those two, you know, um, quarters, but even that when the Treasurer says we're in a recession, you know, you can guarantee that the second quarter, he knows, will in fact be coming out. When we're in a recession, it it impacts upon people's capacity to do the things that they did before COVID-19, like pay for childcare. And we already, before the announcements of childcare, we knew that it was going to, you know, like it's being called the pink recession. We know that it's going to unfairly impact on women because it already is. So more women have lost their jobs. More women have cut hours because of COVID-19. More women cared for children in their own home um, when ch- schools were closed and, and, you know, did that um, home education stuff than men. And so we knew that, you know, that this is going to impact on women and it's going to impact on women hard. 
And so when, and by this I mean COVID-19 and the coming recession, when families make decision about childcare and, you know, what happens and where they spend their dollars, if a woman has lost her job or cut hours, then that family is generally not going to be able to pay for childcare. And it seems a bit extraneous. Why would you? You have a woman home to look after the children. But then it kind of extends from there because what happens when a woman doesn't have childcare is she can't apply for jobs because she doesn't have childcare. And as we know, it's hard to get into childcare. And then what happens is, and I'm using that word childcare, sorry, because I've been writing about childcare for a while because that's the way that we get in, get things in rather than talking about education and care. But then once that happens, once women are cut out of the workforce, then demand for education and care drops. So although parts of our sector are saying this is really good, we're snapping back, the rescue package wasn't that good, I think we're going to see another huge drop in our occupancy rates and it's going to happen when JobKeeper drops for all families. So when JobKeeper is taken away at the end of September or possibly even earlier, then we're going to find that... um, that, you know, there's just not going to be as many people clamouring for places in our, sec- in our services. We know, surprisingly, because it was announced on a public holiday, G8 Education, our large corporate, actually had time to put together a notification for the market prior to the market opening um, to kind of try and assuage the market's feelings about G8 and prop up their share price. Companies do this kind of thing all the time, but this time they actually got time to think about it. And what they've done is put out their occupancy rates, which is really unusual because this was a company that saw a dip to its share price when it dropped to 80% occupancy or 79% pre-COVID. They're now saying that their occupancy is 65% and only, I think, 55% of those um, are actually turning up. So if a company like that has dropped to 65% now, then after people lose JobKeeper, companies lose JobKeeper and go, well, actually, we can't afford to employ so many people. Mary Jane, you're going to have to leave. And Mary Jane takes her child out of childcare. Organisations like G8 are really going to suffer. And people in our sector don't seem to realise that across the board. Some organisations do. Good Start came out immediately and said, you know, we know that a good third of our, I think they said a third, of our families have, have got lower wages, shorter hours than they had before COVID. So this is going to happen, you know, to small centres as well as big ones and big corporations. Yeah, I wonder if is part of the issue, and this was this was part of the issue with the original relief package, um, that the 
either the minister or the department just didn't seem to have the either the time, the resourcing, or the uh, desire to fix. Is that the sector is so fragmented and complex and just even geographically different that there is not going to be this one size fits all sort of solution, whether it was the relief package and then this now transition, is that there are just always going to be, there's going to be such a wide variety of services who either do well or don't under um, this package. For sure. And and they just look at raw data, you know, they don't think about what it means for this service in this part of Western Australia or this service in this part of Canberra or this service in type in, you know, um, know, the middle of the Northern Territory. They just, you know, look at the raw data. Are more people going back? So that's why they're saying, wow, we're back up to 75% of demand, 74% of demand. So in other words, 26% of all demand has disappeared from the childcare sector. And they think somehow that can be replaced with, you know, a small fund for a few months. I think what they're actually trying to do is go, well, there's actually too many education and care services. And if there's a contraction, if some of them have to close, then it doesn't matter. Mm, it's interesting. I've been hearing that uh, that talk. It's, you know, the, the financial market-based stuff is not my skill set. So I, I, I love talking about that. But one of the things I've been thinking about, and I was after the announcement, yesterday and I think I was thinking aloud on Twitter about this as I as I tend to do. That's where I hone my thoughts and then I bring them to the podcast where they are entirely yeah, that's structured where I steal and clear. Your that's... And just rewrite this article. <laughs> no, yeah. no, it's where I put on my serious radio voice and try and pretend I know what I'm talking about. But it's after I've been shouted down on Twitter. But part of the issue here for me this is going to be another long rambling question. Sorry Lisa, I'm doing a few of them tonight. But that's um okay. we warned people this is going to be one of those episodes. Um the government, I think, has approached the both the relief package and the transition package, let's call it. So their response to the issues that were affecting the sector at the start of March or towards the end of March, probably, it became particularly acute. They've approached it purely as a sort of business market support issue. Whereas I think what a lot of the advocacy over the, over the last few weeks in particular where there has been a, a pretty significant increase, which I think you sort of, you know, which is reflected, I think, in your piece, has really says, well, this isn't a market business issue. This is a social policy issue. So I think there's two separate conversations here. So the government's transition payment package thing kind of makes sense if all they are trying to do is say, well, this these businesses were private businesses. We don't particularly like the idea we had to support them at all, but we kind of accept that. There's a, there's a strong economic case than to be there. But we have this data, this economic data that says, well, they should be okay now. So can we just do this business solution? Whereas what I think a lot of people have been trying to do over the last little while is say, no, early education isn't a business problem. It's a social policy issue. And you had an opportunity to approach this as a social policy solution. If you, if you approach this as a matter of social policy, you wouldn't be thinking well, how do we ease everyone back into the old system and how do we reduce the amount of total funding we are supporting people? The question would be, how can we make sure more children are accessing early education? I mean, that might not be the first thing, even from you know a left government, but their first thought might be, how can we encourage more uh, vulnerable or families experiencing vulnerability or disadvantage? And how can we encourage more women to join the workforce? And I think you would see a very different 
transition package than the one that was announced yesterday. But it, does that I mean does that ring true for you at all, Lisa? That there's kind yeah. of that, that's the two that that that's that people are approaching this from such radically different perspectives. The government's going, "What are you all on about?" But the last few weeks, I've just and I'm still I think I'm still working through this in my head and what it means for wider advocacy because I think there are huge implications but I think we've almost seen all the old arguments we've been kicking around in the sector for the last however long have almost been overtaken by voices outside the sector going on going this is a huge social policy issue and can we please approach it that way and I think that that's going to play out over the next few years all the people that have been activated over the last little while I don't think they're going to go away anytime soon yeah look I think for sure but I think you know part of that is the work that a lot of advocates have done in the sector to bring other people along into understanding that early edge that childcare is no different than early education, including your good self, we should say, important. Lisa. Just well, including you as well, all of us. Um, uh, you know, it like, but yes, people are now saying that. No, I like nothing more when I see someone outside the sector say it's not childcare, it's early education. Although I must say after today I've had a lot of men schooling me um, to tell me everything I don't know about early education on uh. social media. That's never much fun. Um, but I think that primarily, you know, we got a government that's about lifters and leaners it's a government that's about what's good for men it's a government that's about what's good for you know businesses and so are we really surprised that they didn't do anything about social policy they don't care about social policy you know they really don't they you know like it felt like they did during covid but really, you know, a lot of those things were just motivated by keeping the economy going and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing that gets to me most of all is Dan DeHaan said, you know, we've, we've talked to, you know, we've been talking to the sector and the sector has done this. And you were the one that said it, Liam. No, they haven't been talking to the sector. They've been talking to providers. And if... You know, when I first came into social policy stuff years and years and years ago, it was with uh, um, organisations that were they were called community youth support schemes and it was in a time of huge unemployment. And so the government set up these kind of like basically childcare centres for young people where they could go and do training courses, etc. And... The people that were advocates in that sector taught me that every child uh, community youth support scheme was about the management of the scheme, you know, the um, workers that worked in the scheme and the young people. And so it had that kind of tripartite thing that, you know, it was about. And it's the same with early education and care. It's about children and families and I group them together even though they have separate interests but it's about children and families it's about providers and it's about um educators and I'm not sure that educators were in on those consultations 
I'm sure that parents and children weren't in on those consultations. So I, you know, it may have, the, the, you know, the um, early education and care reference group that the minister meets with has got everybody in it. You know, it's got, um, uh, you know, it's got people representing Ush services, people representing family daycare, people representing for-profit childcare, people representing not-for-profit childcare, etc. But it doesn't happen. You know, ECA is there, but that's as far as they're the only representative of children and of children, and no one's there representing families. So they consulted with the businesses that run primarily with the businesses that run childcare, and that's why the organisations that most had their voices heard in this was the Australian Childcare Alliance and ALACA, both of which are organisations that represent providers. And until that changes, then that's the voice that policy is going to be made to assist. service to not just point out the kind of i don't know what else to call it the craziness of the only section of australia's economy well not the only sorry i should say the only section of australia's economy that was receiving JobKeeper that has now been excluded from it the first cab off the rank i don't know why i'm using the expression so much tonight but there you go i am the first the first group of Workers in our economy to you be excluded mean the first from people that were screwed were educators. That's, Is that what you're I'm taking. To say? I'm taking a very long time to say that, Lisa. You you've picked yeah. such, but but I just don't. I and it, and, I, and it's been great to see. I think the media has kind of picked up on that. This was that that you know a sector that is 97 percent women and some of the lowest paid people in this country doing who kept working throughout the, throughout this entire. Uh, system through this entire situation, through this entire pandemic, that showed up at work at times when we weren't entirely sure what the health and safety implications are, to kick them off JobKeeper. I just the the level of political strategy behind that just kind of escapes me, Lisa. But that well, it's the same thing as, as what happened in New South Wales. Oh, let's give teachers and nurses, you know, um, a, a pay freeze, you know. That the all the frontline workers are being the ones that are most being disregarded and disadvantaged. Yeah, I think yeah. I don't think I had much more to say in it. There wouldn't just be an incoherent scream. But the yeah yeah. I just the, that would be valid. Yeah, but the fact that that was thought okay to announce just kind of, um, and I think a couple of people have made the good point that this it's very pretty dangerous and pretty disrespectful to use this sector and educators as an experiment for JobKeeper to see when it can and cannot be switched off. Yeah, I keep going. Sorry, when on days like this, there's so much com- coming across my desk that I don't actually get to read everything, but I keep seeing. And I've read half of an and uh, an article by Andrew Proven Proben for the Sydney Morning Herald, and I re- um he's a political economic commentator I think, a journalist I think, and if you get a chance to read that, do it do so because it just talks about us being the canaries. No, Andrew Proben's with the with the ABC. Um, 
Uh, is he or yeah. is he with? Yeah, he's with the ABC now. The ABC nabbed is him he? from somewhere. But no, from it is a good article. I, I remember okay, flicking yeah. through that one as well. Um, yeah, so if you get a chance, maybe we can find it and put it in the show notes. Um, uh, you know, um, Liam, because I really think that that just talks about why this sector was used as the, you know, the canary in the cage. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think unless there's any sort of, unless we wanted to dig deeper into some of the advocacy and, um, implications of, of this kind of one i maybe want to switch it around to i think what services maybe you need to do or think about from now and particularly one of the things that i was most thinking about today as i was i think i've sort of mentioned on the podcast before a lot of my job is you know um you know uh, sort of deciphering policy and getting it out to the families of the you know of, of the centers i work with but doing a lot of the policy analysis piece within the organization a lot of it was just the challenges which we face time and time again, and look, we probably talked about time and time again on the podcast. We might have to do it again a bit now. But the the how the how the system seems to work in Australia is that the government comes up with an incredibly complex piece of policy work, and then sort of gives it to services to communicate that to families. And we're in that situation again. And this is you know layers of complexity upon layers of complexity. But this is. It, 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 it's a huge challenge, isn't it, Lisa, really, to be doing this work for the department and emailing families or you know, setting up meetings with families or having face-to-face conversations with families trying to explain to them what all this means. Look, it is, and you know, I'd hate to be doing it, even though that's also some of my paid work, but just remember we're in the luxurious situation in that your organisation employs you who actually understands a bit about policy I get to do it for organisations that need specialist understanding, but there's most of our services are standalone services with a director that may or may not get time off the floor that isn't a large organisation like a Good Start or a G8, and they're having to understand this and translate it for themselves and their staff and for their families all by themselves, maybe with the help of a peak organisation, but it's a peak organisation that a few years ago would have been funded to provide professional development and information. Now they're struggling to find the money to do this analysis and distribute it to their members. Yeah. Well, I feel like my analytical hat is uh, is well and truly exhausted at the moment because I, 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 you know, I put this as a dot point in our run sheet. I, I don't know what to really say about it. It just happens time and time and time again that this is incredibly complex stuff. And what frustrates me, I think, and it's interesting, we're seeing, you know, examples of this. It's, we're talking about, you know, the livelihoods of families. We're talking about the families who are going through, you know, individual stories of stress and difficulty due to COVID-19 and a range of other things. And to hear sort of, you know, for that well you know we have to start paying again and maybe the activity test has changed or whatever families often first recourse is to get a bit frustrated with the service the amount of times i've had to explain to families that we don't have any we control don't do we don't have yeah. any control and literally we have that and i think i shared the email with you today lisa i have it in bold in in most emails we yep. send out we have no control over your ccs eligibility or percentage and we have to do but there is still the but I don't begrudge families for that. I understand, and that's part of my job. But the 
the complexity of it is so challenging. And particularly, I think, given we've been in a period of free enrolments where families have probably not been thinking too much about updating their Centrelink details or probably haven't thought about what, you know, staggeringly, Lisa, you may be shocked to hear this. What when, when people are losing days of work or losing their jobs, their first thought isn't, gee, I better make sure I update my details with the government so that my... You know, it's strange people that can't bring themselves out of the trauma they're currently going through to... And what, Liam, you think that, you know, they might have better things to do than spend five hours on the phone trying to get onto Centrelink to actually update their stuff? Yeah, like ramming nails into your head or something. Yeah. It's a much better usage of your time. Yeah. But, um, but that, you know... But that... that's okay because Centrelink does have an app and a website. You know, of course you've just got to have access to the internet and time and stuff to use them. but Yeah, know. I did notice with that nap, it's, it's got the word express in it, which I think they think has solved all their issues with Centrelink. <laughs> if we just call the app something express, then clearly it must be doing well. Yeah. So I think it's tied you out, all this all this policy change, Lisa. I'm really sorry. Oh, look, it, it has. It's just, it's, it's like when we came into COVID-19, I... Yeah, this is just talking about personally what I do for my living here. I was enormously busy because a lot of organisations needed the new package explained to them and were paying me money to write fact sheets, etc. for members. And yesterday on a public holiday, I just went, I'm going to come out of COVID-19 doing exactly the same thing. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, it's never going to end. And it's, like, how do you explain, you know, like, um, yeah, the activity test that we spoke about earlier, it's so bloody complicated, you know, and, like, you can read that stuff a million times and you think, how can I get that down to two lines, you know, that people actually understand why it actually is an issue for them and what they do. Yeah, and, again, the the simple solution is, is, you know, families go to, Centrelink, but of course, families are going to turn first to the to the people and the services they trust. People who speak English, as opposed to a bureaucrat, and that's a big it's a big ask for services to get and, on, and get on top sorry, of that stuff. Like we've done it once before when they bought the CCS in, services were an unpaid arm yes. of Centrelink. You know, explaining how how this really complex system worked, and now we've got to do it again. You know, explain. Yes, well, you're back to normal, but hey, have you put in this tax return? Because if you don't, you won't get CCS after, you know, whatever. And some of the things that we have to explain to them, to to families about, there's nothing in the new government documents about. No. There's nothing whatsoever about additional childcare subsidy for temporary financial hardship. And that is the one thing that I think all services need to be telling their families, not just to, to prop up their um, uh, their attendance, occupancy things, but because families need to know that it exists. If you have a family that has had a hit to their income because of unemployment or cutting hours, etc., they are eligible for temporary financial hardship. They have to apply through Centrelink. Yes, I know that's horrible. <laughs> they have to apply through Centrelink 
But in most cases, because the maximum you can get for acts temporary financial hardship is 120% of fees, in most cases it should reduce their fees to zero. Now, it does only last for 13 weeks, but that 13 weeks may give mothers a chance to find a job. Yeah, I think that's particularly important as well as one of the other frustrating and strange parts for me around the the what do they call it the easing of the activity test is you, you can only apply for this uh, support for the if, if you can demonstrate that you're basically you've you've lost days of work or have lost employment due to COVID-19 you can only apply after the 13th of July so after the the free system is over and I just I just don't know what world these politicians are living in that people that families will take the gamble they might get the funding and keep their enrollment like they need to know that before before the fee before the fee-free period ends. Are you sure you can only apply for it after? Yeah, I had to read that several times because that just bizarre. It's after th- it's, it states you can apply for that after the thirteenth of July. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> 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 okay, and then we get on to the activity test, and we should just talk to people a little bit about that. Hey, you say, um, are you saying you understand the new requirements, Lisa? Then go ahead, because I'm listening. Well, I, I want to well, know. Yeah. So essentially, you've got to prove that um, you can get up to 100 hours per, per fortnight if you can prove that it was because of COVID-19 that your hours have dropped. So you've got to talk to Centrelink and if you can prove that it was dropped because of COVID-19 and not just because you walked out on a job, etc., then you can get it. You can't get it if, you know, before, say if you lost your job in January before COVID became a thing and so you went from 100 hours CCS down to 16 hours CCS as the minimum, you can't get get it now you know even though you're as stuffed as your fellow Australians that did lose their job or did lose hours during COVID-19 but um, for those that actually did lose it because of COVID-19 and can prove it then they can get 100 hours that's kind of the basics of it it's yeah. a little bit more complicated than that it is a bit more the only other thing yeah a great summary Lisa the only other thing I'd just suggest people just try and wrap their heads around as much as possible. And I'm, you know, literally, you know, my first thing on my calendar for tomorrow morning is drafting another email to families about this. Um, is just is that there are some of the eligibility requirements are around what people's eligibility and percentage and hours were before COVID. So, uh, you know, for example, if fa- if there was a family that um, didn't meet the activity test before. COVID, they won't be able to access this, so they have to... Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. If you yeah. lost your... I said that. Oh, yeah, so... If but, you but, lost your job in yeah. January... But even for other reasons. So if there was... If, if yeah. Whatever the reason, there may not be a lost job or it may be stop training or, or whatever people were doing. Um, yeah. It's what, what this... And, they, and they're really clear. They put this as an example. And I just love that the department or the minister just think this is, this is the example they want to put out there, is that they don't want people who didn't have access before to get access through this system. Yeah. And I just go, 
Yeah. Really? Anyway. Yeah. Um, um, and the other thing that we should talk about is just the absent rule, absence rules. Lisa, so, you're only saying that because you know I had to send you a screenshot of one of the answers to the question and go, Lisa, can you please translate this into English for me? So you're bringing this up just to shame me, which I think is unfair. No, I'm not. It was just that it struck me how complex this is. So essentially, remember all that hoo-ha will they increase the absence days? That was for this financial year up until June 30. So you got 62 instead of 42 days. After July 30, um, you're back to 42 days and you can still get additional days for, you know, the old specified reasons such as, you know, if your child is ill or whatever or whatever. But the good thing is, is that they don't need medical evidence of this until December 3rd. Why December 3rd? I'm not sure, but it would be something to do with Centrelink um, weeks. So if it's COVID-19 related that your child is sick or can't come, you know, like basically if your service says I'll get that snotty-nosed child out of here then and you've used up all your absence days, then you can get the additional absence days without having to drag said child to a doctor to be told it's got a snotty nose. Yes. How's that sound? That sounds good. I'm sure families around Australia will be cheering that the government <laughs> sorted out additional absence policy. And the other thing with absences is that now um, you can get CCSS for up to seven days before a child's first and after a child's last physical attendance at a service for a range of reasons. It's a pretty narrowish kind of range of reasons, but it includes if a child's sick. So, you know, if a child at your centre contracts COVID-19 and the parent says, I'm never going to let this child darken your doorsteps again, then, hey, you can char charge CCS <laughs> up until the last day they up until, you know, the last day they're enrolled for, regardless if they physically showed up to it. All this just reminds me of that bizarre period of time. It feels like years ago, but I think it was in April, when the department was just obsessed with additional absence policy. They, they seemed to think that was the magic bullet that would save the sector if they could just sort out <laughs> additional absences. There was legislation being passed. There was e daily emails for like a week and a half. Seems like a very you long time ago. You know, one of the funniest bits of this is... We had a thing called the Early Childhood Education and Care Relief Package, right? Okay, you have, you I'm, I'm thinking vastly, so that seems like a very long time ago. But, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll take your word for it. You've, you're still getting it. You're still getting it. And you will still get it until the 13th of July. And that gave you 50% of your CCB at a specific uh, week in February. Of your fee revenue, sorry, not the... Fee revenue, yeah. yep. You're now going to get a payment that'll be 25% of your fee revenue, but that is not the early childhood and care relief package. That's the transition payment. Why is it changed names? Because there was a whole heap of legislation around the early childhood and care relief package that they don't want to be part of the transition payment. So even though it's still a payment that turns up in your bank accounts apropos of nothing, it's got a different name because it's got to be named differently so that all the CCS rules that they turned off because of the existence of the Early Childhood and Education and 
early childhood and care relief package, they're now putting back on. And so they have to change the name of the payment that you get. I just feel a bit sad for the BCP acronym. We've had so many long and glorious acronyms in the sector. <laughs> We've had the PSC, CCB, CCR. We've got the new kid on the block, CCS, which you know has been in for a while. But the old BCP, the business continuity payment, it didn't last long. You know. No, it didn't. Farewell, BCP. No. We thank you for your service. <laughs> but you have got the TP. We have got the TP, which just again, will people be hoarding the TP? Can we hoard, can you hoard the transition the payment? Of the TP. That's right. Cool. The TP, in fact, conceived inside <laughs> the tent. <laughs> oh God, this this podcast's been going on for too long. So before we before we laugh ourselves, we're finding ourselves hilarious tonight. I don't know if anyone listening is, but um, I think we should. Might Liam, do you actually think we've got listeners? Come on. <laughs> Not by the. I'm surely they've turned off by now, but we. Maybe maybe in terms of wrapping up, maybe what we should think about is just what probably the things services should be focusing on or doing over the next little while. My my suggestion, um, probably my big suggestion, I might actually just keep it to one because I know you might have some more ideas about advocacy, Lisa, is the what needs to be communicated is really complex, but the communication is critical. Um, I know this is a bit sounding like a hammer sees everything a nail. My job is kind of this communication stuff, but it is... but. You know, I've seen this through the COVID-19 thing is when we when we sort of get the communication pretty good, it, it solves a whole bunch of other problems. What I would really recommend to uh, anyone who's, you know, communicating with families or anyone who's in um, a service is focus particularly at the moment on the CCS requirement. I would almost ignore some of the other stuff. Families, you know, uh, may or may not care about the transition payment being smaller than the relief package, you know, what will happen with JobKeeper, the activity test stuff won't matter for a few more months. What does really matter at the moment is families getting their CCS stuff up to date because the worst case and scenario... And their ACCS. And their ACCCS. So the worst case scenario is families who have had a whole bunch of changes happen to them that they haven't, um, you know, that they haven't looked in MyGov for a while, they haven't updated stuff. And then when the, you know, direct debits kick back in, if that's how you do your, your, your payments, is that they're getting charged for an amount they don't know about. And that, you know, is then months of trying to chase up with that family. So I would almost ignore the other stuff, not ignore it, but maybe provide a really quick summary, but nail the stuff around families. You have to log into MyGov, check your CCS, talk to Services Australia if you're unsure at all. I would... I would and, do that by email, harass them at the door, hard copy. you actually estimate what your income is going to be for the coming year because it may mean, you know, like people think that CCS is kind of like, well, this is just what I get. This is what my fees are and this is what CCS is. But if your income has dropped, you may jump into a different CCS category. So you need to somehow estimate what your income is going to be for the next 12 months and it'll be the hardest 12 months ever to <laughs> estimate you know but you need to do it because it may mean the difference between having to take your child out of child out of early education and care or keep them there yeah, but this is my it is my strongest bit of advice, and I say to someone, this is the advice I give in the organisation I work for. So this is the you know the the, the the job that's been signed off for me. So we did a kind of general update today that wasn't overloaded with detail. I think that's the only thing we shouldn't pretend we know more than we do, or we shouldn't pretend that the government's announcements make sense. Provide an overview as best as you can, sort of summarise it, but then start sending out you know targeted stuff that is just about 
go on and do this. Here are the implications if you don't do this. It may mean you're charged far more. Um, it may mean that, you know, and, and there's nothing we can do about it. So I would really nail that stuff. And then in the coming weeks, you'll have time to talk about things like the activity test um, and you know, and, and what the, the transition payment and JobKeeper changes will mean to your service. I think it is important that families know about that, but I would really focus on that stuff right now. Yep, and in your spare time, do some advocacy. Absolutely, because everyone has that at the moment, yeah. 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 <laughs> but I think that is important, and particularly for me, it would be the storytelling around families who have had to drop days. So if 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 you know if you you know those families who you have a really good relationship with, and if you see that they're choosing to drop days or even in their enrolment, you know I'd be going. You know what? We're really sorry to see you go. It'd be great if you could send your story to Minister Tian, so that he's actually seeing and having to respond to particular oh, Liam, stories. Also, tee them up with the media. I know yeah. a, a particular organisation today was asked by media to find some families that thought they would have to um, cut, you know, hours. And they discovered that they had about approached about 30 families and the families held such shame about yeah. having had their income cut that they wouldn't communicate uh. it. So if you do have someone who's had their income cut and doesn't feel that shame, is prepared to talk about it to the media, please get them in front of the media. Imagine if a child's early education enrolment wasn't contingent on their parents' payslip or their roster. Hang on. Uh, are you going back to an episode of Before Jobs for Families, Leo? I think so, yeah. I just have, the, I have this crazy idea that maybe we wouldn't have these deep issues with shame and embarrassment if, I don't know, every child had the right to an early education space in Australia. I'm just spitballing. Now you're just going into fantasy I'm land. just going into fantasy on. land. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I think we've we've deconstructed this as much as is possible tonight. I think, you know, huge, as I sort of said at the, at the top, huge shout out to, you know, the sector educators, professionals, directors who, you know, are once again just having to, you know, sit behind their desk, sit in a classroom and just manage, you know, a whole range of changes on top of managing health and safety and, and all that stuff, you know, absolute take my hat off to you. You do an incredible job. And can I just throw in a, a little plug here? Educators, join your union <laughs> because over the next few months, those providers may have to cut some jobs because they may not have the occupancy to sustain the numbers of educators they've got. If you join the union, your union will be able to make sure that your job is as secure as possible. Do it now. Always good advice. Thanks, Lisa. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.